Live. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. On Friday, February 23rd, 8 p.m., Strathmore presents prolific drummer, producer, and composer, Micaiah McRaven. Blending jazz, hip-hop, and electronic elements into a modern, beat-driven sound, his latest album, In These Times, is the triumphant finale of a project more than seven years in the making. Inspired by both broader cultural struggles and his personal experience as a product of a multinational, working-class musician community, McRaven has a unique gift for collapsing space, destroying borders, and blending past, present, and future into post-genre, jazz-rooted, 21st century folk music. Micaiah McRaven, In These Times, One Night Only, Friday, February 23rd. Tickets and details available at strathmore.org. WPFW, Building a Better World, one broadcast at a time. Welcome to Community Watch and Comment for today. What is today? February 13th. I'm Dan, joined by my esteemed partner, Ray Valencia. Good morning. Welcome to Community Watch and Comment. On today's show, it's Black History Month, and we're going to make it local and focus in on Black history in Montgomery County with the help of Sandy Springs Museum's Allison Weiss. But first... Uh, I think it's appropriate to take a moment of silence for the people of Gaza, particularly the folks in Rafa. It's just unspeakable horror, and uh, it's rather overwhelming and daunting. So let's just pause before uh, continuing with, um, with business as usual, I think we can say. And on with the show. As you undoubtedly know, we're in the midst of our winter fundraising drive, and we need your support. What do you think, Ray? Absolutely. Now is the time. You've been listening for a while. Uh, WPFW bringing you jazz and justice. We bring you great music. We bring you content that focuses on national stories that are not getting enough attention local stories that uh, you have a stake in. And we, what we need from you today is to call and join this community treasure that WPFW is, take a proactive role, become a sustainer for the cost of your Spotify subscription or Apple Music or Netflix or the other things that we buy into every month for our enjoyment and edification and education. WPFW is a huge value for that dollar, for that donated dollar. And so we're asking you today to become a part, a more of an active part of this community and support the station. Thank you so and, much. And then, thanks. Yeah. And, Paul, and, and David, how Yeah. What's that? Go ahead and tell folks how they can how they can reach us to make that donation today and what they're going to get. Yeah, two zero two nine or wpfwfm.org. That's two zero two five eight eight nine seven three nine or wpfwfm.org. Uh, you can also do Cash App, which is dollar sign wpfw. And uh, we have a $500 goal. Please show your love, uh, not just for this uh, particular program, but for the station, the community resource, Jazz and Justice, WPFW. You don't have to listen to the inundation of commercials. I mean, I, I managed to avoid most of the the, the, the uh, Stupor Bowl yesterday, but 
I mean, the commercials just on and on and on, and you don't have to deal with that with our beloved WPFW, but we do come to you every so often uh, for your financial support. WPFW, a part of the Pacifica Network, we're the ones that started this whole idea of listener sponsorship well before NPR, well before uh pbs back in the late 40s the whole idea of you know let's get away from corporate commercial sponsorship and go and get support from the people from the listeners from the viewers that's you all and we need you to step up please and support this wonderful resource i think that we can all agree that is uh pfw almost 50 years on the air here in our wonderful city uh, you uh See, as they say, an abbreviation in the greater D.C. area, we're as far away as Baltimore. It's a big signal. And let's keep that big signal going with your support. Again, 202-588-9739 or WPFWFM.org. Or you can do cash app at dollar sign WPFW. Please show the love, show the support. We really uh, uh, need it. We really uh, 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 appreciate it. Uh, most of us are volunteers. Ray and I are volunteers. Most of the programmers, most of the voices you hear are volunteers. Let's show the love and uh, step up and, and help us out. Thanks so much. And uh, on with our important show. Uh, it's Black History Month, and it goes without saying that it's important to honor important figures like Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, James Baldwin, Frederick Douglass, and on and on. But it can also be important to focus on local Black history. The Sandy Springs Museum is doing just that with an innovative approach that accesses uh, Black history in the documents generated by the white community that make up the majority of its historic collections. And joining us to talk about this relatively new approach and very innovative and wonderful approach and some of the stories it's generating is Allison Weiss, Executive Director of the Sandy Springs Museum. Allison Weiss, welcome to Community Watch and Comment. Thanks, David. I love your tagline, Jazz and Justice. That sounds like something we can relate to at the museum. It's it's great uh, that you can that you can relate, and it's great to to, to have you on. Let's go down to the basics. Uh, we shouldn't assume anything in our listen uh, listener audience because, as I said, we, you know we've got a big signal out into southern uh, eastern Maryland, Virginia, up into northern Maryland, Baltimore. Where where exactly is is Springs? So, have you been out here before? I'll put you on the spot. I have indeed. <laughs> okay. I have indeed. Good. So, you know that um, we're about 12 miles north of the D.C. border. Um, if you were driving up New Hampshire and you drive on what they call um, the highway to heaven because it's got, I don't know, about 12 different houses of worship from all over, people from all over the world. I'm serious. Highway to heaven. <laughs> People have settled here because it's a really welcoming community. And um, you drive up New Hampshire and um, you turn left on Route 108 or the only Sandy Spring Road. And Sandy Spring Museum is about half a mile down the road there. It's right across the street from Sherwood High School. Wonderful. And and why does this, it's a pretty small town. Why does it actually have a museum? Yeah, that's, that is an interesting question. So um, during the bicentennial, you remember uh, 1976, there was so much interest in local history and loads and loads of small communities started their own museums. And usually they were focused on the history of one particular person or it was, you know, this person's house that they were preserving. This, this community got started a little bit later than that. Um, the museum was founded in 1980. And it was actually founded by a gentleman named Delmas Wood. He was an insurance salesman, but he was also an auctioneer. And he realized that every time he had an auction that was selling off the, you know, the ownings of, of a large estate, somebody who moved out of the area or who died, he, he felt like he was literally selling the community's history. And so he got a group of people together and, and, and they literally started a museum with, with that idea in mind that they wanted to stop the, you know, the 
loss of community history. And um, some of the people had a close relationship with Sandy Spring Bank. And so they started the museum in the bank of Sandy Spring, the the, uh, (laughs) location in Sandy Spring proper. And they actually hand built some cases and put some artifacts in and thus was born Sandy Spring Museum. It's really, that's that's kind of a great story. I mean, Mm -hmm. banks can get a bad name, but in this case... <laughs> they did the right thing. I mean, they're donating. They're they're doing the right thing, and mm-hmm. and 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 briefly, I mean, there's a whole kind of very interesting sort of abolitionist thread through the history of of Sandy Springs. If you if you could talk about that, I think our audience would be interested. Sure. So I I think what Sandy Spring, my understanding is that if you you grew up in this sort of general area in in the county, um, you knew Sandy Spring had um, a large historic black population and a large historic Quaker population. So after um, indigenous people were forced from the area, the the area was largely settled by Quakers. And um, I think most people sort of uh, think about Quakers and abolition in, in the same context. In our particular community, there were Quakers who were active in the abolitionist movement. Um, there were Quakers who were not abolitionists. Um, so it's it's a much more complicated story than I feel like is is sometimes shared in popular press. And there's a lot of nuance um, involved with um, how enslaved people were freed, whether they were enslaved, uh, whether they were freed in what format they were freed. Um, it's just so much more complicated than just saying Quakers were abolitionists. Right. But uh, it is the case that, you know, you know what, Philadelphia was uh, a North Star for folks like Harriet Tubman and such, and that was, I believe I have it right, a, a Quaker bastion. So, the, you know, I'm sure it's not black and white, no pun intended, but it, the Quakers were associated with a certain abolitionist uh, streak so it's 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 an important history to mine and it's so important that that sandy springs museum is 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 mining it if you will yeah so what i feel like we're doing is is sharing that more nuanced view at this point um so we're looking at it and we're saying okay first of all why did certain Quaker families enslave people? You know, if, if you freed someone from enslavement, you had to be enslaving them to begin with. And under what circumstances were people being freed from enslavement? So sometimes people were freed outright. Sometimes people were not freed until the enslaver died. Sometimes even then people were not freed because um, I don't think this was law, but it was sort of the practice that you had to be a male in between the ages of 21 and 45 in order to actually be freed. If you were younger than 21, you were still kept in enslavement because you were considered to be too young to take care of yourself. And if you were older than 45, you were still kept in enslavement because you were considered to be too old to take care of yourself. Uh, you have to judge people uh, for their times. I think you can say. Well, there's a there's <laughs> a, there, our, it's, our complicated. it's complicated. It's uh, complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. I mean, what our dear first president uh, sent some slave hunter after some escaped slave. I mean, um, what Thomas Jefferson, uh, our wonderful. Uh, creator of the Declaration of Independence uh, uh, what did not free his slaves at his death, right, I believe, because right. yeah, I, I he mean, was in death, really, something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I think George Washington actually did mm-hmm. free his slaves at his death, but uh, it's, uh, it's complicated. It's not a pretty picture. Uh, no. It's Mm-mm. complicated and... Um, and there it is. Uh, wh- how would you describe Sandy Springs' mission? What What's your 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 guidepost, mm-hmm. your north star? Yeah. So so our mission is to connect diverse communities and advance social equity through the region's cultural heritage. Um, and what that means is that it's an extremely demographically diverse community that we're now serving. Um, you know, when the museum was started in 1980, it was a very homogenous community, and it 
you know, 40 years later, it, it doesn't look like that. It's, it's not mostly white Christians. It's the county in general is, um, I think it's majority people of color now, about 40% speak a language other than English at home. And so the museum recognizes that in order to be relevant to the community, we had to change our mission so that we were essentially sharing everybody's story and not just sharing the story of the dominant culture. Yeah. Yeah. And what would you um, uh, describe as your, your, your primary value? You talk about, see on your website, diversity, equity, inclusion, a, a value that's, that's being challenged in certain places mm. these days. But uh, talk about that if you would. Yeah. I, First, I think that it's not so much challenge in this community. I like I referred to, you know, the highway to heaven with with houses of worship from all over the place. I think people settle here because it's a pretty open, accepting, diverse community. Um, we decided that we needed to embrace this mission, this cause, even though not everybody agrees with it, because we, we just feel like museums are not neutral. And you're making a choice when you're representing, when you're telling one person's story and you're not telling somebody else's story, you're representing your values right right there. You're, you're saying that we value this story more than another story. So we decided to be really overt in that um, we are trying to advance social equity by telling everybody's story. But also in that we're trying to invite a lot of people in to tell their own stories so that it's not being interpreted by us, the stories are being interpreted more by the people who own the stories or the people who are descendants of people who own the stories. Yeah, yeah. And in keeping with this idea of the importance of storytelling, you're, you're having a wonderful event, I think, uh, this Sunday at mm -hmm. 3 p.m., and we are offering uh, uh, tickets to that uh, to, to, to folks that uh, care to support uh, this program, this wonderful uh, station, WPFW. Talk about your event, uh, what, at 3 o'clock this sure. coming Sunday? Sure. So we, we have a woman named um, Janice Curtis Green. She's a professional storyteller. She's president of the National Association of Black Storytellers. And she is performing under the name of Janice the Griot. Um, so it's a it's all about black storytelling traditions. And she did original research in the museum's archives to learn more about a woman named Lucy Hopkins, who was born in approximately 1795. And Glean from our archive, she was able to put together kind of a narrative of, of what Lucy's life may have been like. Um, one of the key stories of Lucy's life is um, a rather sad story that we found in a ledger by um, farm, farm, farmland owner Joshua Pierce. Again, this is from the um, early 1800s, that Lucy um, had to indenture her six-year-old son Levi to Joshua Pierce for a period of 10 years. This was written down in Joshua Pierce's ledger. He doesn't say why Levi was indentured to him, but we're assuming that it was a debt that had to be paid off. So Janice the Griot is going to be talking about this story um, from a first-person perspective. She's going to be embodying Lucy Hopkins and telling this story about how she had to indenture her son um, to Joshua Pierce. I mean, it's, it's powerful, you know? I mean... You know, we're, as I said at the top of the show, you know, we're used to hearing black history through the stories of wonderful, incredible people, Martin Luther King, um, Frederick Douglass, et cetera. But this is like, this is on the ground. These are not, uh, quote unquote, sexy stories. These are, these are on the ground. Can you imagine actually having to indenture your six-year-old? for 10 years to a white man uh, for some unknown debt. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's extraordinarily uh, awful and, and, and shocking and important to, to know about. Yeah, and what was really interesting is that, you know, when we came across this story, it was just written down in somebody's ledger. Like, like it literally said, you know, Lucy Hopkins indentured her son Levi. Like, like just as, as casual as if you were walking into the store and, and you came home and wrote down, I bought a loaf of bread at the store today. I mean, there were, there was no, uh, 
nothing explained why, nothing expressed any regret over this or, you know, mentioned anything about the, the human nature, what, what what was going on, what what Lucy could have possibly been feeling during this transaction. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, and um, so this is going to be kind of a performance. This is going to be dramatic in a way. It's not someone lecturing about this. She's embodying uh, this, this mother who had to indenture uh, her son. I mean, what a, what a, what a wonderful thing that you're, you're, you're providing a forum for at the Sandy Springs Museum. Yeah, I, I, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, you know, I, I think it's amazing that she's able to, you know, take on this persona. So I, I think that's a really exciting, an exciting way for us to be sharing the information that we're finding in our archives. Um, she's also going to be accompanied by an apprentice storyteller named Carla McEachern. And Carla is going to be talking about Lucy's step-granddaughter, Eleanora Bell, who we've also found information about um, in our archives. It's terrific. We're going to take a little break and uh, and do with the do re mi of supporting uh, the wonderful uh, Jazz and Justice WPFW. I'm speaking with Allison Moyes. She's the executive director of the Sandy Springs Museum. Stay with us, Allison. We'll be right back. Uh, and it's great having you having you with us. What do you think, Ray? I think today is the day. I think today is the day for our listeners to join our community in a proactive way and visit us at wpfw.org and make a donation. We really appreciate you becoming a sustainer. Uh, those small monthly donations make a big difference in keeping our lights on and keeping the office running. Uh, most of the work that is done is done by volunteers in terms of programming for the shows, but it takes a lot to keep the rest to keep us on the air so your donations make a big difference and we want to thank you for that and just understand that we are providing a listener-based model that means we're not legacy uh media we're not beholden to advertisers that kind of create a um, sense of where our content should go. I mean, we cover stories that are important to our community. And you're a member of our community or a stakeholder. You're a stakeholder in WPFW. And we're inviting you now to make a difference in this uh, community treasure, community radio. Please, uh, you could cash app us at dollar sign WPFW. Visit us online at WPFW.org or call Five eight eight nine seven three nine area code two zero two. That's two two zero two five eight eight nine seven three nine or wpfwfm dot org. Thank you, Ray. Uh, that kind of says it all. And we have a five hundred dollar goal, and uh, we've got four hundred and fifty to go. Come on, folks, show the love. Step up. I know people are pressed, and I understand if it's if it's not in your uh, uh, capacity to, to, to support us right now, I completely understand. But there are people that can show the love, show the support for this this uh, this wonderful resource uh, that is uh, WPFW. I mean, and you can't hear sweet, pure jazz um, like you can on WPFW anywhere else on the dial in the greater D.C. area. It's just not there. And uh, and I don't think you can hear... Uh, of voices that like on, on, on long-term justice and long-term historical issues. Uh, we're local, we're, uh, we're also uh, national, and we're also international. We are revolutionary radio for revolutionary times. That's the, the theme of this drive. And and please uh, step up, if you would, uh, sustainers, if for $40, um, uh, you can get a WPFW basic membership. Uh, you can just give whatever you can. Uh, what, uh, you know, uh, as uh, we are uh, want to say, you know, for... For three pumpkin lattes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for like, uh, uh, you know, like a step up for ten dollars, so you can just call in and 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 agree to uh, say ten dollars a month. It would be so 
good for us to know looking ahead that we have support out there uh and uh uh uh, and you can you know just give us your credit card your your debit card number and you can and know that you can always you know times get tough you can always uh uh, take it off Uh, you can always withdraw um uh and uh any support that you can give would be would be so appreciated Uh, and as our dear uh no longer with us, the uh, news director Skew Muhammad uh, taught me: no amount is too large, no amount is too small. But for fifty dollars, you'll get a pair of tickets to see Janice Curtis Green, the, the incredible performer that we were just talking about, uh, known as Janice the Griot, uh, and she's going to give a talk uh, um, on Montgomery County's uh, Black History at uh, the museum, whose executive director. We're speaking with, and that's going to be at three o'clock um, this coming Sunday at Sandy Spring Museum. You can take a wonderful trip up there and um, go up New Hampshire Avenue. If you haven't uh, yet already experienced it, it's amazing. I mean, there's just churches from everywhere around the world, Asia, Europe, uh, uh, Africa. It's just, it's really really quite extraordinary and go have a you know homemade bread in a in a in a in a glass of ale at the only uh what is it called ray the only uh, ale house i think i think that's it like yeah. That. i yeah. think that's it and they they it's just a, you know it's a it's an other experience to uh maybe you live up there already uh to get out of the dc area and experience the wonder that is uh, uh, the Sandy Spring uh, area is really quite wonderful. So uh, we're going to go back to our guest, but the number to call is 202-588-9739. If you care uh, to donate, if you have the capacity, we would certainly appreciate it. Or you can go to wpfwfm.org or Cash App Works to dollar sign WPFW. We have a $500 goal. We're nowhere near it. Uh, please uh, step up, show the love, and uh, and help us out here at uh, at uh, WPFW FM. We've been around for almost 50 years, and uh, and we want to keep cranking. We need to keep the lights on. It's a labor of love here for most of us, and uh, I think we can maybe say for all of us. And uh, and we need you to show the love too. So so please do uh, step up. And we are going to go back to our wonderful guest, uh, Allison Weiss. She's the executive director of the Sandy Springs Museum. So uh, Allison, talk about uh, your collection and um, you know how history is told. It's really it's so interesting and important to understand this and. And then uh, we're going to go on to talk about the innovative uh, approach that you all have uh, developed at your wonderful museum. Sure. So um, I I always think that you're, you know, the institution is only as good as your staff is. Um, so I feel like the collection is only as good as your your archivist is. And we happen to have a really wonderful archivist named Lydia Fraser. And a couple of years ago, Lydia was taking people on a tour of the archives and somebody asked, why isn't the archives digitized? And and we explained, well, it costs an awful lot of money to digitize your archives. And and this person decided to fund the digitization of our archives. So they wow. made a I know <laughs> they made a donation of several hundred thousand dollars and we were able to digitize the archives. Now what that means is we have about, I think, between five and 10,000 individual items in the archives, but they equal 100,000 individual pages. So when you digitize your archives, you are digitizing every single page in the archives. Oh, and wow. Lydia and her staff became very familiar with the information that was written on each one of these pages. So now they can answer local history questions like, like, <laughs> in a completely different way than they were able to before we did the digitization. And what we discovered, um, a lot of things. We we learned more about what we have in our collection in general. So it's, it's very heavily um, centered on resources from the 1800s. It's very heavily centered on 
diaries, ledgers, minutes from clubs that have been meeting for over a hundred years. It's um, doctor's ledgers, it's store ledgers, um, day ledgers far from farmers. And we realized that inside of that information, although it was all donated to us by white families and it was all essentially authored by white families, it had a ton of information about black history because the black and white communities interacted all the time. You know, blacks worked on the farms of whites, black and white people both shopped in stores that were owned by whites. Um, they, you know, they shared resources. They borrowed money. Uh, black families borrowed money from white families. And all of these things are documented in all of these ledgers by the person's name, the date that something took place, and the details of this interaction. It's just so safe that and, and your archivist uh, realized that there was a need for a different approach, bring out the voices of, of, of African Americans in the community they weren't necessarily being brought out. They weren't being correlated. I think you can say in, in a certain way, and 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 talk about that that innovative approach that you all developed. Sure. So first, you need to understand how an archives is cataloged. An an archive is typically cataloged with the name of the person who authored the material. So you, David, if you donated your diary to us, it would be found under David Rabin. You know, that's how, that's the search term that somebody would use. However, nobody would know that you interviewed me on this particular day if they were searching under your name. So if they searched under my name, I wouldn't come up any place because I'm not going to be in the index. And this is essentially what, what Lydia Fraser was looking at in our archive. She said, okay, so if you search for information about the white landowners and the white store owners and the white doctors, you could find their names, but you couldn't find any of the black people who they interacted with. You couldn't find the black patients who they treated and you couldn't find the black laborers who worked on their farms. So um, she started thinking about this in terms of equity. And archives are all about metadata. That's the, the data that you use to describe your archives. What are the words that you use to describe your archives? So she started thinking about it in terms of that we needed to provide more equitable access to information about Black families so that you can find history of Black families as easily as you can find the history of white families. Yeah, I mean, and 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 what... Uh... What are you calling this, this this new approach? So so she she's she's calling it equity and metadata. We don't know that we invented this phrase. Um, it's kind of a trend in the field of archives that people are recognizing that past cataloging practices were extremely inequitable for the reasons that I'm describing, because you can only find information pretty much about the dominant culture. And you can only find it in words that the dominant culture used to describe their lives and their actions. So just take, for example, the difference between the word slavery and enslaved, which is, you know, people now are using the term enslaved instead of slave or slavery. Um, those are the kinds of words that are being questioned now in archives. Like, if somebody's looking for information about Black history, they need to, we need to understand what words they're going to be using to search for this information. So we um, developed a relationship with um, Black members of the Sandy Spring community who can trace their ancestry back many, 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 many generations to some of the first Blacks who lived in the area. And they've been helping us work through the archives in, in several different ways. One is thinking about what search words people would be using to look for this information. And two, it's about whether everyone should have access to this information or only people under certain circumstances. And let me explain. Some of the information is, is really sensitive. Like we have um, doctor's ledgers. Maybe you don't want a stranger looking at this information and seeing what disease your ancestors were were being treated for. And, and it's always possible that people can misuse the information in some way, you know, make a case that, you know, this particular community was more sick than 
another particular community, which which gives historical credence to um, how you treat people in modern healthcare now, that you're treating people in unequally. So um, the Black descendants have really helped us work through this, and we're going to be restricting access to the very sensitive information like doctor's ledgers. And there'll be a statement on our digital archives that says, if you have a research request, send the research request and we will review it and then decide the Black descendants who will decide who is allowed to have access to this particular information. So without their input in this project, I don't think we would have been achieving our goal of equity. You know, it still would have been us deciding what's important right. and what's not important. But now we're giving that authority to the people whose ancestors are listed in the archives. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, it's so fascinating and, and important. And it's wonderful that you're honoring the, the crest of people. And there's a certain element of privacy here. Uh, that interfaces with the public's desire to know more, and and you're having to to be the middle person, if you will, mm-hmm. in dealing with that. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, to us, um, it's important that we don't interpret that information. We don't put value on it. We we don't say what the most important stories are, or the least important stories. We're just trying to make the information as accessible as possible. Let's talk a little bit more about. Lucy Hopkins, she wasn't, if I understand correctly, she wasn't actually enslaved, um, uh, we, but we, she would, became a, a lawn, she she did laundry work and there were advantages to that in terms of being able to do it in your own home and not being under the thumb of, of uh, white uh, 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 families, white business people. So... What we know about Lucy Hopkins or about anybody um, whose whose stories we're trying to piece together, we only know what we can find in the archives or we can only know what we can find in, in other people's archives, other organizations' archives. So what we found about Lucy Hopkins was mostly from a ledger, um, as I said, owned by Joshua Pierce, who was a landowner. The only other information we found about Lucy Hopkins um, was that she... Um, well, we found a couple different things. In the census record, we can see, you know, she was listed in 1840, 1850, all the way through 1880. Um, I'm sorry, through 1870, we assume that she died before 1880 because she no longer appears in the census record at that point. We found um, a death certificate for her son, Levi, who lived to a, a healthy old age. But what we found, that which was very interesting, is that in a gentleman whose name was Bernard Gilpin, um, which were records that were owned by um, the Maryland State Archives, we found that he manumitted an enslaved girl named Lucy who was born about the same time as Lucy Hopkins. We we haven't found uh, another reference that we can cross-reference and say, this is definitely this particular Lucy Hopkins, but, but there's a chance because it just wasn't that big a community. And there's not that many... Um, People who enslaved other people didn't always list them by name. You know, they they would say how many people they were enslaving, but they didn't necessarily list them by name. So the fact that it, this person's name is Lucy, that she was born about the same time as we know Lucy Hopkins was born based on census records, there is a possibility that, that she was enslaved be- before she was a free person. Um we don't know for a fact that she was a laundress. What we found in the 1870 census is that she quote unquote keeps house, which could just be a term for somebody who stayed at home. So we don't know for sure what she did um, to earn money. Um, she was married. So it's possible, you know, that, that her husband had um, an occupation that paid. Um, we know something about how many children she had and how old they were, but you know, the stories that we're piecing together is coming from very, very, very limited information. Like it's literally a line in this person's ledger. It's a line in this person's ledger. It's a couple of census records. And you you try to piece together that information based on what else you know in the community and what people were doing when and 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 trying to interpret the story in that way. All right. Any context, any idea? So she perhaps was was freed as a what a teenager, seventeen year old. Uh-huh. Do we yeah. have any idea why 
the context for why she was freed? So um, in the early 1800s, it would not have been unusual for people to start freeing um, enslaved people, actually. So if, if you were a Quaker, there was a movement to, I mean, almost force Quakers. Quakers were forcing other Quakers to manumit their slaves. If, if you didn't manumit the enslaved people, you could be what's called read out of the meeting. So essentially like forced from the the Quaker um, meeting house. It's not called a church, but you could be forced out of the, the local institution, essentially. Yeah, kind of like um, excommunicated yeah. or something a, like in that. A, in a sense, I mean, yes. A lot of peer pressure. And and this is happening in a in very much a slave state. This is the state of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tugman. This is not the, the norm, I think we can say, in the state of Maryland before the Civil War. Exactly, and that's what you, what you pointed out in the at the beginning of the program is that yes, this this was unusual in Maryland for for people to be freeing slaves before freeing enslaved people before emancipation. That that's that's not a, a usual thing. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, I think it's important and and compelling compelling story. Not mm-hmm. you know not on the scale of of the amazing Harriet Tubman and. And Frederick Douglass, and and on and on, but but just you know, this is on the ground. Realize what was happening. Uh, it's it's important, and you all are are bringing out it that your wonderful Sandy Springs museum. We're going to take one uh, little break here for you know what, and we will be right back with you. So, what do you think, uh, Miss Valencia? I think it's time. I think it's time to call. I think it's time to visit the website and make that donation. It's fundraising uh, season. We need your help for our community outreach, community radio. We bring you the stories that are not getting enough attention on the local level. We live in the nation's capital. We cover stories from the perspective of living in the nation's capital, um, it's very important in terms of uh, D.C. statehood, um, understanding uh, D.C. organizations and how you as a, as a stakeholder in the community can participate in the ongoing positive outcome of WPFW. So we're inviting you today to join us. Visit us online at WPFW.org or cash app us at dollar sign uh, WPFW. Or you could call us at 202-588-9739. And we have a, a $500 goal, and we are nowhere in any shape or form near it. Please show show the love, show the support for this program, but more importantly for our beloved uh, Jazz and Justice Station, uh, uh, WPFW. I think that we're... We're bringing uh, relevant, uh, important programming to you. We had some wonderful high school students Mm -hmm. uh, back at at the end of December in our last drive uh, reading from banned books. I mean, it was it was pretty exciting. I think it was it was a good experience for our listeners and a a good experience for for the kids. Um, uh, What nineteen eighty four and a couple of other books. just it's very important and it's not the kind of programming you're likely to hear someone else somewhere else uh, on your dial i don't even know if people have dials anymore it's an old <laughs> uh, on your cell phone you're mm-hmm. not likely to find it uh, anywhere else and we but we bring it to you here on uh uh, WPFW, we did a whole hour. I mean, the Gaza thing is so compelling. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, it's just, it's so horrific. What a six-year-old uh, in desperation, all her dead relatives around her in the car, and she's uh, calling in in desperation, and the Red Crescent uh, ambulance shows up, and uh, they all get killed. I mean, it's 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 unspeakable, and we're, we're bringing that kind of information to you, but we know that, that that's obviously so compelling, but we're also trying to, you know, talk about issues like uh, what's going on in the Congo. I, I didn't realize mm-hmm. the numbers uh, until I did the show a couple of weeks ago. You know, th- something like six million people um, have died uh, in Congo since 
uh, of the early 90s. It's just, it's unspeakable, and it doesn't get appropriate attention, I don't believe, uh, in mainstream media, but we bring it to you here on the Community Watch and Comment and on WPFW. So please step up and uh, and and show the love uh, uh, 800 uh, uh, or 202-588-9739 or org. You can also do cash app dollar sign WPFW. We have a $500 goal. We're nowhere near it. Please step up, show the love, show the support uh, for this wonderful community of resource that is uh, WPFW. And uh, we are going to go back in the few minutes we have remaining to our our wonderful guest, uh, Allison Weiss from the Sandy Spring Museum. Uh, just a wonderful, wonderful resource uh, here in the greater D.C. Uh, community. And, um, and we uh, appreciate having you um, um, with us, uh, Allison. If you, if you could talk about uh, 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 just your museum, it's a, it's it's community responsive. Uh, tell us about that, if you would. Sure. So, um, rather than being a top-down organization where we come up with all the ideas and we hope that people show up, we we actually are a very grassroots organization. So, people come to us with ideas for programs that that they're interested in, particularly. Our folk life partners, we are the Regional Folk Life Center of Montgomery County, which is a state designation. Um, and there's, as, as you know, as we both know, that there's people living from all over the world in Montgomery County, and they're bringing with them traditions from their home countries. And a lot of times people want to share those traditions with other people, or or maybe they even want to just share them with people from their own community, but they don't have a place to do it. You know, they don't have their own museum or they don't have their own community center. And so people started coming to us asking if they could use our space to put on these different programs and workshops that represented their cultures in an authentic way, in a way that they want to represent their culture. So it's not us hiring people and saying, Oh, come and perform this Saturday. It's people saying, this is a holiday in our community and we need a space to um, share our holiday traditions and we offer them the space and we offer them the support to do it. We offer marketing, we help them with registration. Um, you know, so we're, we're the facilitators of the program rather than the experts of these programs. Right. And one example, I, I noticed we have a interesting event this Friday related to the White House and slavery. If you, if you could talk about that for a moment. Sure. We have a historian who's going to be talking about um, the communities around Washington, uh, around the White House, around the Capitol, that were largely inhabited by enslaved people, which, you know, on, at the same time as we were building a democracy, you know, so it, it's, it's this... I don't know if you want to say hypocritical. It's a very complicated way to um, be, be forming a country when you're professing to be a democracy and you're enslaving the people who live right around your your capital. Yeah. I mean, um, I think when the Obamas moved in the White House, it was noted that it was a building that was largely built by slaves. I mean, it's it, just... Isn't that something? It's, yeah. uh, um, it's, it's rather extraordinary. But uh, at the risk of being redundant... Uh, in keeping with being uh, 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 in relation to the community, you have this event. Uh, if you could just uh, uh, re-emphasize the event that you're having at 3 p.m. Uh, this coming Sunday, because we are offering as a gift to donors a couple of tickets. Sure. To so we uh, are having um, Janice Curtis Green, who is the president of the National Association of Black Storytellers. She is going to be doing an interpretive program about local black history um, of Sandy Springs. So information that she found from doing research in the museum's archive, she's going to be sharing that in a first person character. She's essentially going to be embodying one of the people who lived in Sandy Spring in the past and telling the person's story from information that she gleaned from the museum's archives. And the second part of that program is actually to have audiences share stories as well. So, you know, everybody has their own um, 
ancestor stories and it's really fun to share them in a public setting. So we're, we're hoping that her sharing this story inspires other people to share their stories and maybe do more research on, on their family history as well. It's just, it just sounds, I mean, you're the, you all are the ballast of civilization. <laughs> I mean, it's just right back so, at you, you. Know, <laughs> no, you talk about diversity and equity and, and inclusion, and, and that's what uh, your museum is, is, is actualizing. It's Thank you. really, it's really quite wonderful. Just, um, just let's one quick minute, to pick one of your other, um, uh, 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 stories that have come out of your equity and uh, metadata approach, uh, Eleanor sure. Bell, or one sure. other story, if you would, real yeah. quickly. Okay, so we have um, we've uncovered the story of a person named Cyrus Webster, who was born about 1767. We're not sure of his death dates. And we have a lot of records of him shopping in the Sandy Springs store. The Sandy Springs store actually still stands in the middle of Sandy Springs. And um, we know that he was freed from enslavement by Elizabeth Thomas. But what was unusual is that he purchased a lot of things at the Sandy Springs store and he ran up a lot of debt, which is told that part's very usual that everybody bought with credit. But it was very unusual to extend this much credit to a black man. And Caleb Bentley, who is a very well-known community member of Sandy Spring, a very prominent person, actually paid off all of Cyrus Webster's debts from the Sandy wow. Springs store. Um, he was the um, brother-in-law of the person who freed Cyrus Webster from enslavement. So we're assuming that that was his personal connection. But but beyond that, it's, you know, it's one of those stories that we hope to find more information on. But right now we can just piece together from individual lines in a ledger that, that tell us this story. Wonderful. Uh, we're going to have to end it there. It's just, we could go on and on. It's just so important and fascinating. I've been speaking with Allison Weiss, Executive Director of the Sandy Springs Museum. Thank you so much for all you're doing and, and for joining us today. Thank you so much. Very kind of you to have me. I really appreciate it. And uh, just got a couple of minutes left. We are nowhere near our $500 goal. We're, we're creeping towards it, but we're not there yet. So please step up and show Yes, please love. call now. Uh, Yes, please call now. We have a few minutes remaining. Um, call in today. Make that donation. We will put your money to good use. We keep the lights on. We keep the programs rolling. And it takes a lot to run a radio station. And every dollar you donate, it helps you become more a part of this um, treasured community known as WPFW-FM. Thank you. Beautifully said. Uh, 202-588-9739, the number to call, or WPFWFM.org. You can also do it with the dollar sign uh, WPFW. That's the cash app approach, dollar sign WPFW. No amount is too large, no amount is too small. But for $50, you'll get a pair of tickets to see Janice Curtis Green, known as Janice the Goat. Uh, talk about Montgomery County's fascinating black history. She isn't going to just talk about it. She's going to embody it. It's a performance. So we're talking about learning history in a very approachable, entertaining way. That's 3 o'clock of this coming Sunday. I hope to make it up there. I hope you can make it also. And we have uh, uh, tickets for you. Get a pair of tickets for $50. Please show the love. Please step up. We have a $500 goal. We're nowhere near it. Uh, and we need you to uh, show the love and uh, contact us. And that is going to do it for our dear uh, show. And um, uh, coming up, uh, you can uh, listen to the extraordinary Lady Demure. Uh, don't forget the blues. She always has just a just a, a wonderful program. Uh, thanks to Mike Nacella for his engineering expertise. So uh, we've got the news headlines coming right up. Uh, followed up said by Lady Muir. Uh, please contact me at drabin, D-R-A-B-I-N-902. Um, 
at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dave Collective Voices and the Francis Gregory Neighborhood Library invite you to celebrate Black history through poetry from 3.30 to 5 o'clock p.m. Saturday, February 24th at 3660 Alabama Avenue Southeast, Washington, D.C. as they present African Americans and the Arts. Collective Voices, whose members are Lady Di, Sister Joy, Bernardo, and Billy O'Hara, are known for their messages of social consciousness, inspiration, and empowerment. In addition to their original poetry, the celebration will also feature an exhibit by Washington-area visual artist Jason Keene and conclude with a book signing. This event is free and open to all ages. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. From WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Today is Tuesday, February 13th. Here are some headlines. The Senate early today passed a long-awaited $95 billion foreign aid package for Ukraine and Israel, delivering a bipartisan endorsement of the legislation after months of negotiations. The emergency aid legislation provides over $60 billion for Ukraine and $14 billion for Israel's war against Hamas and almost $10 billion for humanitarian aid for civilians in conflict zones, including Palestinians in Gaza. The bill next goes to the House where it faces an uncertain future. Many Republicans criticize foreign aid as wasteful and House Speaker Mike Johnson has suggested he may not even bring a vote to the floor without broader border security provisions. Some progressive Democrats also oppose military assistance to Israel. House Republicans are expected to hold a second vote tonight to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas after failing to do so last week. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise who missed last week's vote while being treated for cancer, could provide the decisive vote in favor of impeachment. If Scalise votes to impeach Mayorkas and all other members vote the same as they did last week, the resolution will pass. If the vote succeeds, it will mark the second time in U.S. history a cabinet official has been impeached. The issue would then have to go to trial in the Democrat-controlled Senate, where a two-thirds majority vote would be needed to convict. Former President Donald Trump yesterday asked the Supreme Court to step into the dispute over whether he may claim immunity from prosecution for alleged crimes he committed during his presidency. Specifically, Trump asked the High Court to temporarily block a unanimous decision from the D.C. Circuit handed down last week that rejected his claims of immunity from election subversion charges brought by Special Counsel Jack Smith. How the Supreme Court responds could determine whether or how quickly the former president will be put on trial for criminal allegations as he seeks the Republican nomination. Analysts say a key part of Trump's legal strategy is to delay his criminal cases until after the 2024 election to avoid alienating potential voters. And in labor news, the Worldwide Flight Attendant Day of Action kicks off today with labor protests at more than 30 airports across the United States. The protests come as over two-thirds of flight attendants in the U.S. are currently in new union contract negotiations. The airline workers are demanding better pay, 
retirement security, and schedule flexibility. In a statement, the Association of Professional Flight Attendants said, quote, legacy sexism that traditionally devalued our jobs must be stamped out and replaced with the true value of our work. Like every other worker around the world, we need to go to work to live, not just live to work, close quote. The association said today's protests will be their largest collective action ever. And in weather today in Washington, D.C., it is 39 degrees under cloudy skies. Temperatures are forecast for the mid to high 40s for the rest of the day and mostly clear skies. From 